This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Welcome to The Every Lawyer, a Canadian Bar Association podcast. I'm your host, Marlise Silver-Sweeney. Are you ever stumped on what to pack on a trip? Imagine if that trip is actually an internship in a completely different country with a different culture, not to mention legal system. This episode is our second in a series exploring the Young Lawyers International Program, funded by Global Affairs Canada. And today we'll talk to interns around the world about what it's like to actually work overseas. From the culture shock to the challenges of doing law in a foreign jurisdiction. Plus, we're going to get some packing tips. Are you ready? Let's continue our journey. Stop one is Vietnam with Shima Hidari. She worked as a civil litigator in Toronto, most recently with Mason Kaplan Roti, where she practices subrogation law before heading to Asia. In Vietnam, she's advising UNICEF on capacity building with members of the National Assembly on various children's issues, including how the labor code applies to kids in the country. Hi, Shima. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you. So before we talk about the law, let's talk about your packing. What's one item you packed that you couldn't live without and you're so happy that you have? Oh, wow. Um, I think uh, um, it's a difficult question, I think. I packed oh, okay. a lot of things with me <laughs> I bet, yeah. um, to, to bring to Vietnam just because I think a lot of the products that I use in Canada um, – are not here so everyone warned me to uh, pack a lot and I think one of my two suitcases was just a ton of products and I'm so happy I came with all of them because I couldn't find um, any of them from just personal hygiene stuff Mm. to um, everything else but I also ordered a pollution mask online which I think I'm really really happy that I brought because the pollution is is crazy here Right. Oh, that's really smart. And so do you wear that when you're walking outside? Yeah. So every morning when I wake up, I get an alert uh, on an app of what the pollution is like. And if it's uh, moderate or low, which is very unlikely during morning rush hours, Mm -hmm. I don't wear it. But if it says high risk or moderate, I do. And then if it's above a certain level, usually if it's above 250, I try not to leave the house. Wow, that's really that's smart to think about that though. So we'll we'll get a little more legal focused now. We'll move away from packing. But um did you have any exposure to Vietnamese law before you headed over? Not at all. Wow. Okay. And so how has it been adapting to a completely different legal system? What does that look like for you? I think coming from Canada and and a and a, and a very liberal um for lack of a better word um political system um coming to vietnam to a one-party state uh was a a different universe um i think and um i started reading up on it before i came here but Mm. uh, even when i came here i think there was a ton of stuff that i uh didn't see online or didn't see in in the the material i had picked up Um, so i think it's completely different from the terms they use to refer to their laws and regulations um, and and sub laws um, to every little thing and how everything gets reformed um, it's completely different okay and so going off of that 
how are lawyers perceived in Vietnam? Is it a lot different uh, than your experiences in North America? I think, um, I mean, we're, we're a lucky community uh, as lawyers. We're perceived well anywhere we go, and, and Vietnam is the same. Okay. Um, what about, are you working in a foreign language? Are you working in English? What, how, how does language considerations play into the work that you're doing right now? So uh, all of my work is in English, but there needs to be a lot of translation done in order for me to do my job. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, we go to a lot of meetings with government officials and, um, national assembly members and, uh, different committees and everyone speaks Vietnamese. And I always have someone either speaking to my ear or I have an earpiece that like someone's speaking to. And, uh, um, yeah, I get along that way. And then if they're written material, um, they're usually, uh, translated to both English and Vietnamese because there's international staff and, and the, and the working language is English for the main part, but everything is translated to both languages. Okay. Um, yeah. Sometimes it has to be done a little faster for me to be able to uh, have time to work on the documents as well. And they just outsource mm-hmm. those. Okay. And so what has the learning curve been like for you? This seems like it's, you know, a completely different legal system, completely different language. Has, has it been hard to adapt to it or what does that look like? Um, you know, I've lived in multiple uh, different countries and I've learned about multiple different legal systems. And, okay. And, uh, and I think um, coming to Vietnam just because of my background it was easier for me to learn and adapt, but there was definitely a period of steep learning curve where I was coming into contact with new information every minute and, and trying to absorb it all. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's been exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I bet it's been exciting. Is there anything that you would have done differently to prepare yourself or did you think going in, you, you did as much as you could aside from just actually physically getting there? I think perhaps uh, I would have looked into, I, I work with the social policy and governance uh, section at UNICEF and, and uh, there's a lot of law reform um, that's happening in Vietnam. And a lot of my work involves those legal reforms. Okay. But had I known the scope of my work, uh, perhaps I would have looked into um, what is going on with those reforms? What is the civil society's opinion on it? And uh, what are the social policies around it? And, uh, what are the UNICEF strategies? I think it would have been helpful for me to get a background, read, read up on it and, and um, start uh, mentally brainstorming, analyzing on how I could help mm. um, to further their um, goals and, and achieve the outcomes. Okay. And last question for you, but what's one piece of advice that you'd have for a lawyer going to Vietnam to work? Hmm. Um, I think the biggest piece of advice I would give to any lawyer uh, wanting to uh, work abroad and not just Vietnam is to put aside fear. Um, Don't let your decisions be driven by um, fear. I think as as lawyers, we often uh, analyze and and, uh, we have financial obligations and Mm -hmm. loans to pay off, especially as young lawyers. And and we often make decisions that are maybe not aligned with our interests. So I would just say, put put that aside, take a risk and go for it. Um, And um, I think it will all work out in the end. 
Well, that's lovely advice. I know that I'm a lawyer as well, and I, I know we're a risk-adverse people, but sometimes you need to put aside the fear and take those risks, and and you'll you'll have a rewarding experience. For sure. Okay, well, Shima, thanks so much, and good luck with the pollution. That's really interesting about the pollution mask. I'm actually going to look into those for my next set of travels. <laughs> you should. Pollution mask. An excellent packing tip. We're turning the plane around now and going back to Toronto. It's worth the return journey, however, because we're chatting with Catherine Fox, who recently came back to Canada from Gangnam, Myanmar. There she worked for the International Law and Development Organization for the Rule of Law Centers Project. Catherine, can we start with some packing advice? You're back in Canada now, but looking back in retrospect, what do you think the most important item was that you packed? A hundred percent investing in packing cubes from Mech. Oh, pa- Mech packing cubes specifically. Okay, how come? Um, because they allowed me to squish my clothes down and I could fit them onto my suitcase. Like, Ooh. no problem. Okay. Um, I borrowed my sister's and, uh, I'm definitely going to be purchasing my own for my next excursion. That's a good tip. I have packing cubes, but I bought them off Amazon for a very cheap amount of money and they always break. So maybe exactly. You need okay. the strong zipper. You need the strong zipper. Okay, we're not sponsored by Mac, but some good advice. Okay. No, and then the other thing I just, I wish, you know, um, I had no idea what to expect in terms of access just to like small toiletries and things that mm-hmm. I, you know, rely on here in Canada. Right. Um, and, you know, it just, there was more available there than I would have expected. And so a lot of my suitcase was taken up with things like shampoo and conditioner mm-hmm. and... I don't know, all those things. And I right. just didn't need quite as much because if I ran out, I did. I It actually was available. Good to know. Okay, so toiletries, you don't need. Packing cubes, you do need. Yeah. Okay, we have that sorted. Now that we figured out our packing, uh, let's turn now to the actual work. What was the work culture like over there? So in Toronto, you worked, uh, you were in-house counsel for unions, uh, doing a, a lot different work over in Myanmar. Uh, culturally how was adapting to this um well you know I have worked overseas a couple of times before and you kind of know when you do this um there's always going to be a learning curve in terms of how a particular society interacts in the office or out of the office it's kind of the same and so um I did a lot of communications work um, which was you know, kind of side project for a lawyer, but Mm -hmm. we're trying to do more legal awareness campaigns on Facebook because Mm. in Myanmar, as some people might know, um, Facebook is a huge deal. Um, Okay. The like kind of silly cliche phrase they always like using is that Facebook is the internet in Myanmar. Wow. Because most people don't have computers. They just have smartphones Mm -hmm. and Facebook comes pre-installed on their smartphone. Wow. So the way that most people actually access the internet wouldn't be through, you know, like Chrome, like we might use or Google or anything else. They actually Mm -hmm. like most of their news, any links that they click on, it's through Facebook. So for our project, we thought, okay, well, people really like learning things on Facebook. So let's try doing legal awareness campaigns. So I was the one doing the material and I had to work with um, 
the communications officer. Okay. And so had you been working in communications at all back home or was it a new (laughs) skill set? Okay. Brand new skill set. Okay, cool. So we talked a bit about the culture and the work culture. What about legally? Did you come across systems so divergent from what you're used to dealing with back home that it was hard to navigate? Or what did that look like? Well, so, I mean, in the project that I was in, it wasn't the same as working in the legal aid clinic. I wasn't going to court and arguing cases. Mm -hmm. Um, But I took it upon myself just to learn as much as I could about their political culture and legal culture um, because... It, I mean, it's kind of fascinating. You know, the legacy of the military dictatorship dictatorship is that um, you have this something called the General Administration Division, which okay. was the civil branch of the military. Mm-hmm. And they were the way that the military could oversee the entire population. So it went down to something called the 10 household head, who then reported to a 100 household head, who mm. reported to the ward administrator, who would report to the township administrator. And this is still in place. And it's actually in the process just recently of being moved under the civilian government. Um, but up until very recently, it was still under the military And this group of individuals is actually who a lot of people went to for legal issues to resolve problems. Um, Not, not judges, not lawyers, not the courts. Did they have legal training or no? No. Oh, Um, okay. But they became these kind of de facto problem solvers. And so Mm. um, they became a group that the Rule of Law Centers Project targeted in their training because we were teaching them you know things like negotiation skills and mediation skills mm-hmm. um that they not so it's not just substantive skills but those very practical skills that they have to deal with in resolving conflicts on a daily basis right um and for me that that was such an important thing for the project to do because trying to deal with a extremely corrupt legal system kind of feels like an uphill battle mm-hmm. um, and maybe not one that will be will be overcome anytime soon right but being able to improve access to justice in this very unique Myanmar very local level mm-hmm. is a way to actually impact the daily lives of right people living in Myanmar so very grassroots you'd say yeah and was was that what you're expecting um well I knew that you know, things weren't necessarily going to work the way they do here. Yeah, I, I, I haven't had any experience <laughs> in this kind of same system. But, you know, I it's not uncommon throughout the world to kind of have, you know, um, village elders, um, yeah. you know, local leaders. And that's kind of the role that the general administration department people serve. Interesting analogy. Uh, what was the perception of lawyers like in Myanmar it sounds like it could be really interesting from what you can tell was it a respected profession was it even really established as a profession if we have these de facto judiciary I would not say that lawyers are particularly well respected in Myanmar okay um one of the reasons behind that um is that a lot of females tend to become lawyers in Myanmar okay um and that's partially because it's seen as not as a respected um, or prominent because it's not part of the military. Mm, um, okay. So 
yeah, you kind of have that legacy of this being a very female-dominated industry in Myanmar. Okay. Which you wouldn't necessarily expect. But no, um, different as a result, America. people don't really, like, look highly upon lawyers. Okay. And also, you know, um, in terms of, the like, the judicial sector, like, people don't go there for answers. Yeah. <laughs> really. Wow. Yeah. Right. So everyone knows that the judges are corrupt and it's all just about what they call tea money and you have to pay tea money to your lawyers to opposing counsel to the judges to the people pushing the paper everyone has to get paid out tea money and so that's how that system works and so I think as a result it's not something that the average person looks to with any kind of respect or potential solution to their problem Right. Was it overwhelming working within that system or did you feel like you could make change in the time of your internship? So, I mean, I don't know if I made that much of a change within my internship, but um, one of the things I did a lot of was write donor reports. Mm. And as part of that process, I was always compiling, you know, quotes um, from participants who had taken our program Mm -hmm. and you know, you could have those days where you really felt like this is such a waste of our time. We're never going to make a difference. And then you'd read the quote of a woman who prior to the training, you know, the quote would say something like, prior to this training, I just thought women were left behind due to nature. But now I know that, you know, I'm supposed to have equal rights. Oh, wow. Or you'd have lawyers taking our legal skills training and saying, you know, before this, I never thought to look from look at a case from t- both sides. I didn't think that that was part of my job. Right. And now I really think I can do a better job for my clients. And so you'd see these little changes happening. Right. And that's not going to result in any kind of overnight change, mm-hmm. nor what I'd expect it to. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, the will is there. Among the general population. Well, it sounds like you had quite the journey. Thanks for chatting with us. Yeah, no problem. Our final destination on today's episode is Kyrgyzstan. And we've been here before on our last episode. Stacey Sue is working for the International Development Law Organization over there. The same organization as Muhammad Zubar. Before that, she was a litigator in Toronto for five years. Stacey, we've already learned a bit about Kyrgyzstani food, but what about packing advice? What should we bring? Is there an item from home that you're really grateful to have over there? So I'm really grateful that I brought my snow boots because here in Kyrgyzstan, the weather is very much similar to Toronto. We had a winter as well, and the boots came especially handy when hiking through the Kyrgyz mountains, which tend to be snow-capped. And the boots kept me very warm, even though they were very difficult to pack in my one luggage that I was able to bring over here. Ooh, yes, but they're worth it. So if you're going to be spending a winter in Kyrgyzstan, bring your snow boots. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Okay. Well, that's actually a good transition because I wanted to ask you a bit about the differences that you're experiencing between Kyrgyzstan and Canada. Um, What's that transition been like for you? So mostly it's related to the people. Um, 
in Canada, I live in Toronto and I work in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And as many people know, Toronto is extremely diverse in terms of the population as well as the types of food. Here in Kyrgyzstan, um, the majority of the population is Central Asian. And myself, I'm Asian, so I felt like I was able to blend in. A lot of people here think that I'm actually locally Kyrgyz. So that was a different experience for me. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, I became visually sort of like the majority here but I did Mm -hmm. miss eating all different kinds of foods um, and as well seeing the different kinds of people that I'm used to seeing in Toronto right so a lack of diversity but fitting in in a different way than expected yeah and it was a conscious choice for me to uh, pick a destination where I would blend in because I felt that that would help me assimilate quicker and maybe uh, be more effective in my work Oh, interesting. And has that been the case? I think so. Yeah, it's been really easy for me to make friends here, uh, Mm -hmm. both expats and locally. And especially if I go to the bazaar, if I'm able to speak some of the local language, people think that I'm local and I'm able to get a lower price. (laughs) Oh, good. So it's good for bartering. So you talked a bit about your transition between the two countries. What's it like being over a woman over in Kyrgyzstan? Have you had to take any different precautions or is it very similar to Canada? I'd say uh, um, nothing has personally happened to me. I've been lucky in that way, touch wood. Um, but my colleagues, male and female, have definitely both warned me, have, have definitely warned me not to walk alone at night, um, even if I'm out at a restaurant to call a specific taxi and not hail a taxi um, and go to your residence rather than even if it's very close to, to walk there. So taking some more precautions than you would maybe then back home in Toronto. That's right. Are lawyers respected in Kyrgyzstan? What happens when you meet a local and you tell them what you do? As a lawyer in general here in Kyrgyzstan, being a lawyer is not perceived as prestigious as it is in Canada. Um, I remember going on a hike one of the very first hikes that I went on here and someone had asked me what I do here and I told them that I was a lawyer and um, I'm working on programs that help fight corruption and the person basically just laughed in my face oh wow and sort of said good luck with that but um, I have found though going to the universities and giving them expertise from Canada. They're very grateful that you come all the way from Canada to teach them about mediation or about what the rule of law is like in Canada, whether they're very interested, whether there's any corruption in Canada. So I found in the teaching situation, they're extremely grateful and the students are eager to learn. And they're also very eager to have change happen. um, And they're curious about the legal systems in Canada. Okay, so you'd say in academia, definitely it's a respected profession, but maybe uh, outside of that, uh, less so? Yeah, outside, I'd say um, the people that I've talked to, they can be quite cynical about the judicial system Mm. and about changes that can happen. Um, So I haven't been as open as I usually would have been in terms of telling people that I am a lawyer and that I work in the legal system. You spent five years practicing law in Canada before you went over to Kyrgyzstan. So you're a seasoned lawyer. Have you found the work in this new position really different from what you were used to uh, in your previous career, or is there some overlap? There definitely is some overlap, um, but there are some differences as well. Here in Ideal Low, um, I assisted with a big project about introducing mediation to the country. Oh, it's wow. a totally new concept. Yeah, it's a new concept, although 
um, they have these elders called axakals who act as informal mediators. But in the traditional sense that we know today as mediation, there isn't such a thing. So I was, as a litigator back in Toronto, I participated in lots and lots of mediations. Mm-hmm. So I was able to bring that knowledge here. Um, but the difference is that a lot of the programs here, you require consensus building. So that's something that was new for me. As a litigator in Toronto, you appear before a judge and you argue your case and you get an order and mm-hmm. that's that. But here it's about um, getting input and getting feedback from different stakeholders. So the process takes a longer time to develop, but it's much more rewarding. Yeah, it sounds very collaborative. That's right. It is very collaborative. And I've also found that um, I've learned a lot from teaching at the university. I've been doing that at the uh, American University for Central Asia, again, on mediation and other topics. So I've learned a lot from that as well. And is that part of your internship or is that something you've taken on apart from uh, this experience? It's something that I took on apart from the experience. It's really easy here to meet other expats who are doing interesting things. And so one of the friends that I met right away when I landed was a business professor at Mm -hmm. AUCA, the American University. And so she had a colleague who was a law professor and I got introduced to the dean of the the law school. And so she invited me to come and help coach their Jessup Moot team as well. So that's been really fun too. What a neat experience. It's so great that you're taking part in academia over there. Yeah, it's really great to be able to participate and coach the students and uh, teach them what you know as a litigator and pass on some of that knowledge. Actually, that's another good transition. You're doing my job for me. Uh, How has it been adapting to this foreign legal system? So it sounds a lot more collaborative, but then you're talking about coaching students for the Jessup Moot, so there might be some overlap between education. Uh, What's that experience been like for you? Coaching the students has been extremely rewarding. Um, I find there's a balance between being the nice coach but also being tough for them so one of the things that I feel like I've been able to add is to ask them questions in a very direct way which uh, the dean has told me is not typically the central asian way Mm. so us grilling them questions about their fact pattern and how they came to their um, reasoning how they came to the their argument and to support that with case law that's been something that uh, I've been told that we can bring as Canadian lawyers. Okay. And what about adapting to that foreign legal system? So you're bringing aspects of your training from Canada over to Kyrgyzstan. What about, are there any adaptations you've had to make in your skill set? So um, Russian has been a big uh, barrier, I think, to be able yeah. to fully adapt into this legal system. It is a civil law system. I've had to rely really heavily on my colleagues and sort of start from scratch. Sometimes I feel like I'm in law school again because something so simple as looking up uh, a criminal code, mm-hmm. um, I have to ask a colleague for translation in Russian and then look for it in Russian and Google and then translate it back into English so that wow. I can read it and look for the right statute. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a process. Yeah, everything takes a little bit longer. Um, so one of the things I really wish I had known before is maybe being able to brush up on or learn some Russian. Learn some Russian. Okay, that was actually my last question for you. What's one thing you know now that you wish you knew at the beginning of this experience? So it's similar. So you wished going into this that you'd brushed up on your Russian. Uh, is there anything else that you've had you're nearing the end of your time over there that you wish you knew at the beginning of your time? Um, well, 
anecdotally, I wish I hadn't bought an umbrella here because <laughs> I haven't really, <laughs> really had to use it. I bought it on maybe the first day that I arrived um, because I, I didn't have enough space in my luggage. But I have only used it once. Oh, since, wow. Um, it tends to be quite dry. Yeah. Okay. So that's one thing. <laughs> Starting and ending on a packing note. Bring your snow boots to Kyrgyzstan over the winter, but not your umbrella. Really that's good right. advice. Okay. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time. I know it's night there, so we'll let you go. But we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We're flying home from Kyrgyzstan yet again, but this time we know to pack our snow boots. Our trip today is done, but it's not the end of the traveling lawyer. Next time we'll explore what happens when things go wrong. Thanks to Stacy, Catherine, and Shima for the packing list, and also for sharing your international legal experience with us. I'd love to hear what's the one must-have you have in your suitcase, and also how your career as a lawyer has been perceived abroad. Have you had any interesting encounters? Tweet to us at CBA underscore news, or you can reach me at my handle at SS. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes. We also have a podcast in French called Juris Franche. And it's not too late to apply for the next round of the Young Lawyers International Program. If the stories today have piqued your interest, check it out. The deadline is coming soon, though, April 30th. Visit cba.org slash YLIP to apply and learn more. With funding from Global Affairs Canada, there are hundreds of volunteer opportunities. And stay tuned for part three of the series, where we'll move on from packing lists. I promise. Thanks for listening.